Hello, and welcome to Tidal Volume by Breathe Easy Pediatrics, a podcast where we look at the core concepts of pediatric pulmonology care. My name is Ryan Thomas, and I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and CF Center Director at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. I'm recording this podcast in early April, and so today in honor of social distancing, I'm going to be flying solo on this one. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the providers, caregivers, first responders, and other essential personnel who are helping both keep our society and our hospital systems running. For the time being, ATS is prioritizing COVID podcasts related to the pandemic in order to get out good and accurate information as soon as we can to those caring for people with COVID. And so I'm not entirely sure when you will be able to listen to this podcast. But I'm hoping by the time you listen to it, things will be much improved. Today I'm bringing you a brief discussion about cystic fibrosis exacerbations. The discussion is really intended to be an overview of the core components of the management of a CF exacerbation, both inpatient and outpatient. I intend to mention some of the evidence or studies behind these recommendations, This is really not intended to be an exhaustive review. It's intended to be more of an overview for those residents or fellows caring for patients with CF exacerbations who perhaps really haven't had an opportunity to nail into the nitty-gritty of the details of why we're doing what we're doing. So now that we've sort of set the expectations, let's get started. The objectives of today's podcast is to do an overview, really briefly, of CF pathophysiology, just so we all have a good common starting point for discussing what a CF exacerbation is. And then we'll talk about the medical importance of treating CF exacerbations and discuss the management of CF exacerbations as well. Cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive disease with abnormal epithelial transport of chloride and sodium that results in thickened viscous secretions, and a variety of clinical consequences. The lack of functioning CFTR protein leads to an inadequate excretion of chloride into the lumen of the airway or other organ system, and also resulting sodium hypersecretion through ENAC channels. An often underappreciated portion of CF pathophysiology is that CFTR also transports and regulates bicarbonate, And bicarbonate plays an important role in maintaining a neutral pH in the airway. And the slightly acidic nature of the airway in CF actually impairs the ability of mucins to unfold and trap microorganisms and also makes them tend to be a little stickier on top of the dehydration that leads to sort of predominant cause of stickiness. Inflammation is also dysregulated in CF airways. Neutrophilic airway inflammation can be detected in the first months of life and there's a sustained and prolonged inflammatory response to pathogens. This inflammation causes airway and organ damage, and ultimately leads to the decline of lung function over time. So because this is primarily a talk about the CF exacerbations, I'm really going to focus more on the pulmonary aspect of CF, which is ultimately is the source of most of the morbidity and mortality in the disease, which is why pediatric pulmonologists or pulmonologists tend to be the people who sort of initiated CF care, though that's changing with time. Poor mucociliary clearance causes mucus plugging and infection, both acute and chronic in nature. 
and this chronic infection creates a brisk inflammatory response, which then leads to damage of the airways. This airway damage leads to airflow obstruction, bronchiectasis, and further impairs mucociliary clearance, starting this sort of vicious cycle that CF lung disease is known for. The airways become colonized in early infancy, and Haemophilus influenza is often recognized as the first organism. Pathogenic bacteria progressively colonize over time, with organisms like Pseudomonas, MRSA, Stenotrophomonas, and Burkholderia sapatia commonly being associated with accelerated lung function decline, which is why we worry about them so much. Other bacteria can be present, but are not always associated with worsening disease. Non-tuberculous mycobacteria and fungi also play a role and may be associated with lung function decline in some patients. Patients colonized with aspergillus may develop a hypersensitivity reaction known as allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. And those with non-tuberculous mycobacteria infections can be very difficult to treat as the organism tends to be pretty refractory to therapy. That's really more of a podcast all of its own. The progressive airway damage eventually leads to bronchiectasis. This comes mostly from massive infiltration of neutrophils into the lung tissue. These neutrophils release elastase, which overwhelms the antiproteases of the lungs and contributes to tissue destruction. The neutrophils also release DNA and cytosol matrix proteins, which contribute to the viscosity of airway mucus. Studies have identified bronchiectasis in 50-75% to of children by the age of 2-5 to years old. And this lung damage often precedes lung function decline. And so even in the setting of normal pulmonary function, there will often be bronchiectasis in children. So now we can transition to actually talking about pulmonary exacerbations. And before I get into this, I want to sort of emphasize that different CF centers manage exacerbations in different ways. And so as you move from center to center or hospital system to hospital system, you're going to see that the CF teams manage these exacerbations in different ways. And I think everyone has a good, thoughtful process behind what they do. But it's also important to recognize that some of these things we do don't have great data behind it. And because of sort of this lack of great data, we end up with this sort of variation in practice, where some centers are more aggressive than others. Some use more IVs than others. Some use inhaled antibiotics during exacerbations while others do not. Some will prescribe antibiotics over the phones, others will not. And, you know, I'm not going to come down too hard on any way of one way or the other of doing this. Because I think that it's important that we just sort of understand that we're doing the best we can with the information we have. And everyone's going to put an emphasis on you know, some papers or some experiences more than others. And I think that it really emphasizes that we really need to learn more about this. I mean, this is obviously a pretty important part of CF care, as I'll discuss a little bit further shortly. And we really would be doing both our patients and us a service if we could learn a little bit more about this. So a pulmonary exacerbation is an episodic acute worsening of respiratory status in a patient with cystic fibrosis. There's no agreed upon definition. Symptoms may include new or increased cough, sputum production, chest congestion, decreased exercise tolerance, fatigue, fever, hemoptysis, 
some signs of an, a CF exacerbation would be a decline in oxygen saturations, lung function, weight, or worsening of chest x-ray appearance. Pulmonary exacerbations are clinically very important. The number of exacerbation is associated with increased lung function decline, and it has been estimated that half of FEV1 decline in CF is associated directly with an exacerbation. It should also be noted that somewhere between 12 and 20% of patients fail to return to 90% of their baseline FEV1. And the combination of these two things sort of underlies the impact on survival that pulmonary exacerbations have. So what causes pulmonary exacerbations? Viruses are detected in many exacerbations of CF, with approximately 60% of CF exacerbations in children being related to a viral infection. Viruses are a less common cause of exacerbations in adults. Virus-related exacerbations are associated with worse severity and quality of life and similar pulmonary inflammation. Why that is, is a little unclear. Bacteria obviously play an important role in CF exacerbations, though the exact nature of that role is still a little unclear. A majority of exacerbations are thought to be due to a clonal expansion of existing bacteria though data on this is a little mixed. It has been hypothesized that anaerobes play an important role that may be underappreciated due to the way we obtain CF cultures currently, but the data on this is also a little bit mixed. There's some recent data out of U of M that shows broader anaerobic coverage didn't make a difference in outcomes in CF exacerbations. Non-tuberculous mycobacteria may also play a role in pulmonary exacerbations. Mycobacterium abscessus is associated with a decline in FEV1 and more rapid progression disease in a subset of patients. It's recommended to consider non-tuberculous mycobacteria if there's an unexplained deterioration or lack of expected improvement with appropriate antibiotics. For those of us taking care of children, the downside is that culturing for non-tuberculous mycobacteria requires sputum, which may limit our ability to detect NTM infections in younger children without using bronchoscopy. Fungal infections should also be suspected if there's a poor response to antibiotics, and we classically think of ABPA as presenting in this manner. Aspergillus may cause pulmonary exacerbations without allergic response. Radiological, serological, and microbiological features of ABA can overlap with CF without ABPA. The role of candida in CF lung disease remains unclear. And it should also be noted that the diagnostic criteria for ABPA and CF are not the same as those are used in asthma, and so paying attention to the CF-specific ABPA guideline is important. So now that we've established a patient has a pulmonary exacerbation, you know, what do we do about it? So the management of pulmonary exacerbation is a combination of things. It includes aggressive airway clearance, antibiotics, potentially hospitalization, respiratory support if needed, an assessment of sort of secondary causes of pulmonary exacerbations, monitoring for side effects of antibiotics, and then involvement in allied services if needed. Airway clearance is considered a crucial aspect of the treatment of exacerbations. We intensify the airway clearance above baseline. It should be noted there's not a clear benefit over any one type. Airway clearance in the United States the vest is the standard of care, but in, in other countries, the vest isn't used, and the outcomes don't seem to be that different, though that's always a little hard to tell with epidemiologic data because there's so many other factors that play a role in outcomes. 
Hypertonic saline increases mucociliary clearance and has been reported to have some anti-inflammatory properties as well. During exacerbations, Dornase Alpha is continued, though it is not clear it has a significant effect on the exacerbation itself. Continuing it makes sense because the exacerbations tend to be associated with a significant amount of neutrophilic inflammation, and the ability to cleave that neutrophil DNA could be helpful in restoring normal airway clearance during the exacerbation. So now we'll move on to talk about antimicrobials. Oral antibiotics are used for outpatient management of mild exacerbations, most commonly with viral illness with symptoms lasting more than three to seven days. Selection is often based off cultures. Most CF clinicians will use anti-pseudomonal antibiotics if pseudomonas has previously grown. There is some really interesting research that's coming out nationally about how long we need to continue to cover bacteria if they have not been grown in some time, with some centers using cutoffs of one year or two year or even longer sort of depending on the bug. I think that it's good that we're going to continue to learn more about this because the ability to narrow our spectrum of coverage in antibiotics is going to help preserve the broader spectrum antibiotics from when we need them when patients are older. Oral antibiotics have largely been successful in eliminating symptoms. There was some data published within the last year that seemed to favor Augmentin for pediatric patients not growing Pseudomonas over Bactrim. And again, that may have something to do with anaerobic coverage, but that's a little unclear. Multiple courses of oral antibiotics are less likely to avert progression if there's an initial unsuccessful treatment. And usually a switch to IV antibiotics is preferred with hospital admission. But this is not, you know, a cut and dry decision. We always have to sort of weigh what are the social and family factors involved in this? What is the underlying mental health of a patient who's about to potentially be admitted? And, you know, what are the chances that we could switch to another regimen and might get some benefit out of it? CF centers nationally with the best lung function tend to prescribe IV antibiotics more frequently. And so it puts us in this interesting sort of dilemma where we know IV antibiotics work the best in preserving lung function, but it's associated with, you know, much more of an impact on somebody's life. The indwelling lines we use to give the antibiotics are associated with complications. And we know that a a majority of patients given oral antibiotics will respond. And so there's this always sort of like push and pull, trying to figure out what's the best way to do this, given the data we have. And we know that giving IV antibiotics more frequently is going to lead to the best sort of pulmonary health and survival. But there's more to life and to these decisions than this. And I think each center handles this a little bit differently. IV antibiotics are generally used if you have failed an oral antibiotic regimen, your symptoms worsen on oral antibiotics or the exacerbation is severe, or potentially if there's new organisms involved. Antibiotic choice is based on susceptibility testing, although there is evidence that shows that the susceptibility of bacteria in CF to an antibiotic doesn't make much difference in clinical outcomes after an antibiotic is used. So that is sort of an interesting dichotomy in CF is we know IV antibiotics are the best way to recover and preserve lung function but which IV antibiotic we use may not actually make a difference. And so how do we understand the mechanism of this? And I think there's been a lot of you know, research on going into this and a lot of smarter people than me that really haven't figured it out yet. And so I think this is a little bit to be determined, 
But it's important not to think about IV therapy with antibiotics for CF exacerbations the way you would treatment of pneumonia or an abscess or bacteremia or anything else where the goal is sterilization of the infection site. We know we're not going to be able to do that in CF. And we know that the polymicrobial nature of CF infections probably precludes us from really being able to target these drugs effectively. So it's really important just to treat, monitor response, and change if need be. It's the standard of care to double cover Pseudomonas antiruginosa in CF. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation investigated whether or not there was sufficient evidence to recommend a single antibiotic for the treatment of Pseudomonas infection, and they concluded there was insufficient evidence at this time to recommend a change of practice. I am aware of some centers out there that are using single-agent therapy, and the fact that they're doing this suggests that they're not seeing bad outcomes because of this. Most commonly, we will use a aminoglycoside in combination with a beta-lactam antibiotic in order to sort of double up on the mechanisms that we're using to kill the bacteria. It is pretty common at many of the CF centers I've worked at to monitor response to therapy closely and then modify the regimen if the patient's not clinically improving. The duration of IV antibiotic therapy is also a matter of some debate. There's a minimum duration of 10 days that's been recommended for antibiotic treatment. And most CF clinicians use 14 days as a routine, though there's a lot of variation between centers. Evidence on duration is mixed. There's a large multi-center retrospective study that indicate FEV1 plateaus after 7 to 10 days of antibiotics. And another study recently found that patients treated with more than 14 days of antibiotics had a greater increase in FEV1 from day 14 to follow-up. IV treatments of less than 9 and greater than 23 days or those without hospitalization were considered risk factors for IV retreatment within 30 days of completion of therapy. Both patients and doctors have reported subjective benefits after a third week of treatment. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has concluded there's insufficient evidence to recommend an optimal duration, basically because there's no controlled studies on this. So it's sort of up to all of us to do the best we can with the information we have available to us. Inhaled antibiotics give a theoretical advantage of an enhanced antibiotic exposure. The airway concentrations of antimicrobials when they're inhaled are you know, orders of magnitude higher than they are via IV. However, there's no clear evidence that there's improved outcomes related to this. Two trials have been done on this and showed no benefit, but both trials were underpowered to find an effect. And so this really remains an area that has not been adequately studied. Inhaled antibiotics do result in lower pseudomonas sputum counts. Inhaled and IV antibiotics can be used concomitantly with a lot of center-specific variation on case-by-case basis and can be especially useful to cover an organism that cannot be covered by IVs adequately. A survey done of centers nationally suggests that a majority of centers do not combine inhaled and IV antibiotics during exacerbations. So we have the ability to do IV antibiotics both at home and in the hospital. And the question is, which is the best place to do it? And much like everything else in CF exacerbations, there's conflicting evidence on outcomes. There are studies which suggest better outcomes for patients treated in a hospital. There's data suggesting a shorter duration to next antibiotic course, a decrease in IV retreatment within 30 days, better weight gain in the hospital, improved FEV1 change, 
an increase in the chance to return to 90% of baseline lung function. But there is also data reporting equivalence. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation recommends IV antibiotics in a non-hospital setting only if resources and support equivalent to the hospital can be assured. So this again is another sort of tricky spot. From a respiratory support standpoint, oxygen is recommended to maintain saturations 90% or higher. Non-invasive ventilation can be used for hypercabinic respiratory failure or the inability to oxygenate with oxygen alone. And in adults, it's recommended to use sort of similar protocols as COPD guidelines. There's a lot of concern that non-invasive ventilation may lead to increased mean airway pressures and further worsen airway clearance. This really hasn't been validated in the data. And I do think that we need to consider that You know, someone on non-invasive ventilation probably will have better airway clearance than someone who's intubated, sedated, and paralyzed. So there probably is a role of non-invasive ventilation in CF. Intubation with invasive mechanical ventilation can be used as needed, though it's really important to have an advanced directive in patients who are at risk for this. Outcomes have been historically very poor, but are improving with time. There is some recent data that suggested mortality is about 45% in CF patients who are intubated. Those with pneumothorax or hemoptysis fare much better, and so this data should not be applied to them. Traditionally, survival rates have been thought to be as low as 20 or 30 percent, and so this shows a substantial increase in survival, and that intubation in end-stage CF may not be futile, but it does require careful consideration. When we think about other causes of pulmonary exacerbation, the first two things we'll commonly think of are allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, and non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. And we really discussed both of those before. An assessment and treatment of these disease processes is a topic for another podcast. Another important thing to consider during a pulmonary exacerbation would be cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. CF diabetes is the most common comorbidity in CF, with approximately 20% of adolescents and approaching 50% of adults having the disease. There is increased pseudomonas infection and lung function decline immediately prior to a CF-related diabetes diagnosis. And there's a really interesting sort of pathophysiological theory behind this, where at a high enough glucose level, they can measure leak of glucose into the airways, which may create favorable conditions for bacterial growth. For all admissions for a CF exacerbation, screening for glucose abnormalities is generally recommended looking at both a fasting and prosprandial level. It's important to remember that hemoglobin A1c is not recommended as a screening tool for CF-related diabetes. There is accelerated red blood cell turnover in CF patients related to chronic inflammation, and so their hemoglobin doesn't fully glycosylate prior to destruction of the red blood cells, which leads to false negatives on A1c when used for screening for CF-related diabetes. This is another topic for another lecture. Pulmonary function is monitored during exacerbations with spirometry to monitor a response to therapy. Again, we find variations from center to center, with some centers monitoring lung function weekly, while others doing it twice weekly or more. The goal of therapy is to return to baseline lung function or frankly higher. Due to the increased airway clearance and IV antibiotics, we will sometimes see lung function improve to levels that had not been seen in years. We also want to monitor really closely for side effects of antibiotics, nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, neutropenia, hypomagnesemia, and hearing problems have all been reported in CF-related antibiotic use. 
Reactions to antibiotics become more common with repetitive exposures, and this is sort of one of the core issues in CF exacerbations where we know the more IV antibiotics you use, the better they do, but the more we use, the more side effects and reactions they get. Much like the CF center in an outpatient is a multidisciplinary team, so is pulmonary exacerbation management. Respiratory therapy, nutrition, physical therapy are all utilized during exacerbations. I want to take a moment just to discuss a specific part of pulmonary exacerbation care, which is hemoptysis. So hemoptysis is considered basically by itself to be a CF exacerbation. Non-massive hemoptysis, which is considered 240 ml in 24 hours or 100 ml daily for several days, can be treated as an outpatient. Massive hemoptysis is an indication for an admission by itself. And about 1% of CF patients per year will have massive hemoptysis, and that's inversely correlated with lung function. It's important to have an understanding of the medical management of hemoptysis and CF because some of the things don't necessarily seem like something you'd want to do in the middle of a CF exacerbation. And so it's important to be cognizant of this if a patient reports hemoptysis, and also it's important to ask about it in anyone coming in for an exacerbation. The medical management of hemoptysis includes stopping of any NSAIDs and a brief stop in airway clearance and hypertonic saline, generally for at least about a day until the bleeding can stop. Treat with systemic antibiotics. Reverse any coagulation abnormalities. You can empirically give a patient vitamin K or just have them take an extra dose of their CF vitamin as a way to make sure that they're not having coagulation abnormalities due to their vitamin K malabsorption. Transfuse blood products as needed. And surgical and airway management is a separate topic, really, but I do want to point out that it's recommended to proceed directly to bronchial artery embolization as the preferred surgical intervention if refractory, and that's not the same as other disease processes, where often bronchoscopy will be the first thing that we would proceed to. And that's really because we kind of know what's happening in the CF airway. You know, bronchiectasis leads to these large, torturous um, bronchial arteries in CF patients. And especially, it's usually in the right upper lobe, which is usually the worst lobe in CF in general. And it's going to happen again if it's happened once. And so, in general, a bronch is thought to be sort of a waste of time and resources when in the setting of a massive bronchial artery bleed, the best thing to do would be just to occlude that vessel. It's really important to have advanced directive available There's estimation that only 30% of adults are offered advanced care planning, and that 60% of advanced directive discussions happen in a hospital, which is really not the ideal way to approach it. The multidisciplinary nature of CF can lead to a lack of someone taking responsibility for that discussion, and so it may be of benefit to have someone at every center be sort of the person that makes sure everyone has this done. It should really be offered to all patients but specifically those with lung function of 40% and lower, the need for supplemental oxygen, frequent hospitalizations, or those being referred for lung transplant. And a palliative care consult should strongly be considered. At least in the state of Michigan where I practice, all patients with CF of all age are eligible for palliative care. And this can be a real benefit to patients both in early and late stages of disease. You know, I think any of us who work in a hospital also understand the importance of discharge coordination. The discharge of a patient from the hospital back to community care is sort of fraught with potential problems. 
And so having good, strong coordination is important. And I think the CF community has done a really wonderful job of this because often the same CF center staff that take care of the patient as an outpatient are involved with them as an inpatient. And so there's not as much of a transition as there would be sort of more commonly in other disease processes. We generally like to see someone follow up within a couple weeks of a discharge so we can monitor spirometry and see if they've continued to improve or plateaued or worsened. We also want to make sure that any medication changes are made while they're there and that, and that all of their equipment is functioning normally. Any of our listeners who are not directly affiliated with a CF center, please feel free to call. I don't think any CF physician or team member would ever be angry about having someone with a question about CF care call because it is such a niche field. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tidal Volume, presented by Breathe Easy Pediatrics. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at MSUPedsPalm. For those of you without Twitter who'd like to give us some feedback, we also have an email, TidalVolumeATSPeds at gmail.com. I am planning to include some of the references on both the ATS site for this podcast, as well as in the notes of the podcast as well, assuming I can figure out how to get them in there appropriately. Thanks again for listening.